you know what's going on Wave World. We talk to the most interesting people in the world. Today we're talking to Professor Ahmed White, who is a professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder, who's written a fascinating book, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Boy, did I enjoy reading this book. Welcome to Wave's World, Professor. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, you'd think there would be more books about the Wobblies. What brought you to take a look at the industrial workers of the world? You hinted at it just a second ago. This is a story that deserves to be better remembered than it has been. I, I set out to write this book to, to do that, and specifically to say more about what the people who comprised this organization endured, what happened to them, which I, I found extraordinary. And you also have a background as a, you went to law school as well, didn't you, Professor? Yes, I'm a lawyer by training. I teach law. I teach criminal law and labor law. And this is a pretty good overlap, this subject of labor and criminal law. Here you have the criminal law being used as a kind of a labor law, although the kind that, that does a lot more to destroy labor rights than, than it did to enhance those rights. We'll get into this because there must have been some parts as a lawyer now in the 21st century that must have, you know, set your hair on fire. But what were the Wobblies? Just so that people who don't know them as you do or as I kind of do, what were they? What, what were they trying to do? The Wobblies were members of the Industrial Workers of the World, a union that was formed in Chicago in 1905 for the express purpose of organizing the industrial working class and then using that organization to bring down capitalism. Their their stated purpose was to destroy the wage labor system and replace it with a workers' commonwealth. What's interesting is that they intended to do that not by some of the other means that, that leftist groups have employed or tried to employ, like seizing the state or embarking on a revolutionary guerrilla war or that sort of thing, their plan was simple. They would organize the entire industrial working class, call a vast general strike and, and bring the capitalists to their knees, force them to surrender the means of production. That was their plan, and that's what they were formed to do. These days, we talk about gig workers. We talk about informal yeah. workers in the economy. We work in India where informal workers vastly outnumber formal workers, but the Wobblies are fascinating because they were very strong in areas that I don't think most people in this country could even imagine there being a union, like in wheat fields, in harvest areas. How did that come about? Indeed, that's one of the most remarkable features of this union. It, For about a decade after it was founded, again in 1905, it kind of floundered around. It, it led some pretty remarkable strikes. Some people have heard of the the so-called bread and roses strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1912. And there was another big one in Patterson, New Jersey, the year Absolutely. after that. These were both in the textiles industry. So the union was, it was fairly active in its first decade, especially among these workers. They call home guard workers, most of them east of the Mississippi in conventional industries. But again, the union kind of floundered around. It could lead big strikes had a lot of trouble maintaining membership and maintaining its influence among workers after these strikes ended. It really found its footing about 1915-1916 west of the Mississippi in the industry you mentioned, in the wheat 
fields of the Great Plains, where then the crop was brought in by influx of 100,000 or more seasonal workers. And what the Wobblies managed to do, quite remarkably, was establish an organization among these workers. They were migratory. They were at the very bottom end of the industrial order, very poor, not particularly skilled. But this union did an excellent job, found an excellent way of organizing these workers. And that created the foundation on which it was able to grow in the late 19-teens. And that growth in turn is what brought about the repression that I write about in the book. There's also a lot of activity in timber, not only in the Pacific Coast where they were huge, but Louisiana has always had, in the Bogalusa area and around there, had a fascinating organization that was connected to the Wobblies, as I recall. I think the papers for the one of the primary organizer leaders are at Tulane University. You discussed some of that in your book as well. Yes, there's a very interesting story there. I'm from Louisiana, south central Louisiana, not too far from where I grew up and where my family's from. The IWW established itself in the early 19-teens among what was called a Brotherhood of Timber Workers, a, a really remarkable organization. Like a lot of IWW enterprises or undertakings, this one was racially integrated at a time when most institutions in America were not. It was destroyed, the Brotherhood of Timber Workers, within a year or so of the IWW getting involved with it, primarily or substantially by means of of repression, by mass arrest, violence, blacklisting of workers, that sort of thing. So the union did not last very long, but it left a kind of storied legacy of militancy, of interracial cooperation, and of radical aspirations. Well, and they also tried to make some inroads in their brief, brief history in Arkansas, as I recall. And, you know, the areas that are now big IP, Georgia Pacific timberlands, they they had some interest and tried to do something there. We're talking to Professor Ahmed White, who's written a fascinating book about an organization we both agree people need to know more about called Under the Iron Heel, the Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. The Iron Heel you picked up from Jack London's book, right? Yes, the, the title comes directly from Jack London's dystopian novel published just a couple years after the IWW was formed and 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 was heavily influenced by pattern on uh, the IWW's experience or what Jack London correctly thought would be the IWW's experience of being viciously repressed. So I took the title from Jack London's book with that in mind and with a kind of broader sense that that you can't really understand Jack London without understanding his relationship to the IWW. And you can't really fully understand the IWW without understanding their relationship to Jack London, who was very influential on the union and particularly on its rank and file. And so, yes, the title is 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 taken directly from, from that novel. And Jack London does figure in the story, not not to an overwhelming degree, but he is part of the story of what happened. You know, he's even a little bit more maybe than a fellow traveler. He was somebody who was a kindred spirit and 
as you cover in the book, many times Wobblies would cite the Iron Heel and uh, Jack London as well in, in their strikes and activities. Oh, yes. And, and he was, when he died in 1916, he was, he was mourned, he was eulogized by the Union as an IWW man, they called him. And, you know, it's always, if you've ever been to Oakland, you know, the port, they have these huge Jack London Square statues and whatever. And you wonder sometimes how much they know about the history, Professor. Yes, I, I, I often do, and I hope in my own little way, I help remind people of the significance of Jack London, not only as a literary figure, but as one of the most famous socialists in his day, one of the most famous socialists in the world in his day in the early 20th century. You're in Colorado now, and the history of the Wobblies and sometimes was entwined with the Western Federation of Miners, which used to be very strong in the West, in Colorado, people in town, places like that. But their comp- their history was complicated. I know uh, Big Bill Haywood came out of that organization and kept going forward. But how did you see that intertwine between Wobblies and a more... It's hard to call Western Federation a, a traditional union, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to understand the history of the IWW without also looking at the Western Federation of Miners, as you know... Big Bill Hayward was a prominent leader of Western Federation of Miners in 1905 when he played the lead role in the formation of the industrial workers of the world. And for the first few years of its existence, the majority, the overwhelming majority of the IWW's membership was comprised of members of the Western Federation of Miners, which was an affiliate of the IWW. That affiliation did not last that long. And within a couple more years, the Western Federation of Miners had pulled out of the IWW. Big Bill Hayward stayed. The Western Federation of Miners and its its other leaders left the IWW, and they eventually became pretty bitter rivals of the IWW, not least in one of the places you mentioned in, in Butte, Montana, where IWW factions and Western Federation of Miners factions were were involved in, in something resembling open combat uh, yeah. at times. The Wobblies are often identified or connected in the same sentence with anarchists, but that was not a big theme in your book. I mean, their politics, to the degree they had them, were a little more, a little more or less complicated, I might say. Yes, they were influenced by the anarchist movement, as many radicals in this country were in the late 19th, early 20th century, when the anarchist movement played a leading role in organizing radical responses to capitalism, including the Union Front. And there were anarchists present at the founding among the 200 or so delegates who founded the IWW in 1905. But the Union, you're quite right, was never an anarchist organization as such. The anarchist movement remained institutionally separate from the IWW. And the IWW's politics, although again influenced by anarchism, were not anarchist in the strict sense. The union was an anarcho-syndicalist organization, which among other things meant that it thought the primary means of organizing not only revolution, but a revolutionary society would be through worker organizations, through essentially unions like the IWW. And that was, again, their notion of how they would achieve a revolution. And it also informed this sense I mentioned a minute ago of a kind of workers' commonwealth 
that would follow the revolution. And the other important difference between the IWW and the anarchist movement was that while the anarchist movement in this period, in the early 20th century, was often quite clearly involved in in some pretty serious acts of violence, terroristic bombings and that sort of thing, assassinations, the IWW was not. There was a very little bit of overlap between the organizations, a couple of people who worked in both movements, but for the most part, the IWW had no connection to these campaigns of violence that that were attributable to the anarchists. I can cover in the book, there was even a, a sort of a misunderstanding between its enemies and its adherents around what it even meant to be involved in sabotage. Yes, and sabotage is central to the IWW story. What happened was the union always, from its founding, embraced the idea of militancy and militancy as they put it at the point of production, meaning everything from conventional strikes to so-called quickie strikes to slowing down on the job, being defiant, being inefficiently adherent to workplace rules, that sort of thing. But about 1910 or so, the union began to celebrate the practice of sabotage in its many publications. Its speakers began to tout sabotage. And what was interesting about that, as you allude to, was some ambiguity about what that meant. Did it mean the kinds of things I just mentioned, inefficiency in the workplace, that sort of thing? Or did it mean sabotage in the way most people understand that term now, uh, actually destroying things in the workplace, breaking the machines and breaking the tools? The short answer to that question is that it kind of meant both for the IWW, but with an important caveat that the main emphasis was on non-destructive acts of protest in the workplace, and that these destructive acts of sabotage were never official policy and were never all that commonly engaged in by IWWs. It did happen, but many workers, whether they were in unions or not, back then engaged in workplace sabotage. It ends up being important because when the government really ramped up its repression of the IWW beginning around 1917 or so. The centerpiece of that, a centerpiece of that was the charge that this union was not just engaged in a little bit of sabotage, but but engaged in an awful lot of it, and that a lot of this was really dangerous. It wasn't true, but it didn't matter. It ended up very effective in justifying the repression that was visited on the union. Well, they were often by employers accused of sabotage when frequently it was more what we call in unions a work-to-rule campaign when they would take the, the strike, so to speak, into the workplace, which would basically be a work-to-rule slowdown, which employers quickly labeled as sabotage, too. That's exactly right. That happened all the time alongside of outright fabrications and the use of provocateurs to engage in sabotage that could then be blamed on the IWW. And the other thing was, back then, there were a lot of accidents in the workplace, a lot of fires, and every time a factory burned down or a stand of timber, that sort of thing, almost every time that happened, it was blamed on the IWW, even if there were no IWWs anywhere around. It was common for local newspapers and employers to blame the IWW. 
I can sympathize with this. I remember when Chris Kobach was running for Secretary of State the first time, and he was saying he was going to be elected to stop ACORN from being involved in voter fraud in Kansas. Well, I knew we had not a single member in Kansas at that point, not an office, not a staff person. Mm -hmm. But see the articles come up on my Google alert over and over again. We're, we're talking to Professor Ahmed White, who's written a book, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. I've been dancing around it, but let's talk about criminal syndicalism and vagrancy, because when we talk about repression of the Wobblies, these were the two weapons. That's right. They were the two primary weapons. And along with federal prosecutions under the, mainly under the Espionage Act. But while there'd been a fair amount of writing and documentation of the federal prosecutions of the IWW that mainly happened between 1917 and 1920, there'd been very little, um, comparatively little written about criminal syndicalism and vagrancy, even though in sheer numbers, uh, these far outstripped the federal prosecutions and their effect on the IWW. Vagrancy prosecutions were pretty simple. Back then, vagrancy laws were written so broadly that anybody could be prosecuted for vagrancy pretty much at any time. They tended to be misdemeanor laws, meaning they could, among other things, be prosecuted without a lot of fuss, a lot of procedural rigmarole involved in this. And in the end, tens of thousands of wobblies were prosecuted for vagrancy. The typical scenario was just pick these guys up, bring them down to the courthouse or even the police station, and in front of a magistrate or some other low-level judge, charge them with vagrancy and convict them right there on the spot. There was no effective defense to vagrancy. The penalties weren't that severe, but it's all relative because a lot of people spent days or weeks in, in terrible, dangerous local jails, and many, many others would simply run out of town after they were convicted. The authorities told them, look, it's either 20 days in jail, 30 days in jail, or you get the heck out of here. And that's what they did. very effective at undermining the IWW, especially in small towns, rural areas. The criminal syndicalism laws were much more serious. They were felony laws in most cases, and they carried prison sentences, and several hundred IWWs were sent to prison for criminal syndicalism. They were very interesting laws because what they did cleverly, they, they were devised for the express purpose of criminalizing membership in the IWW. And they didn't do that outright because that would have been unconstitutional to just say, well, you're in the IWW, that makes you a felon. The people behind these laws knew that that wouldn't fly. And so they came up with a clever kind of end around. They enacted these laws in such a way that they made it a crime to advocate what was called industrial or political change by means of violence, crime, or sabotage. And they also made it a crime to be a member of an organization that advocated that kind of revolutionary change by those means. What this created was a situation where all you had to do, really, to convict a wobbly of criminal syndicalism was bring them to trial and put the union on trial, put on some evidence, often in the form of the testimony of snitches and turncoats from the union, sure. who said this organization is bent on destruction and mayhem. The defendants, like 
most IWWs are very proud of their membership and very courageous. Very few of them would deny their membership. And so that wasn't a problem. As long as the jury believed that the IWW is this terrible, violent organization, the defendants were convicted. And again, hundreds were convicted and sent to prison. Well, and they were arrested for testifying in trial about somebody for having literature on them. I'm not saying a word. And when we talked about vagrancies, sometimes that was the charge when they were on strike to break strikes and wheat fields or whatever. They would just say, okay, you have no job. You have no visible sense, you know, of income coming in because you're on strike. So therefore you're a vagrant. We'll put you on a train and ship you out. Crazy. It's hard to imagine as bad as it gets right now that this was America, and our judges in those times pretty much approved this, and some of your book hits pretty hard at these so-called progressives. Give us a sense of that. Yes, that's right. I certainly do that, and I, I'll start by saying, you know, not all progressives were intent on destroying the IWW. Some of them actually stepped up and defended the organization's right to exist, but many, many of them, including President Woodrow Wilson himself, Many of them played a prominent role in enacting these laws that were used to repress the union and getting them enforced against the organization. And then among judges and appellate court judges played a role in upholding these convictions in making sure that these people remained in prison after they had been convicted. So it wasn't just a bunch of conservatives or self-avowed conservatives who played the central role in undermining this organization. Progressives played a very, very substantial role in this story, in this story as well. And that's, that is a main theme in the book. Judges, Brandeis, Banker, or whatever. It all just falls so much in the face of freedom of speech and freedom of association. But you mentioned the courage of some of these, of the Wobblies, and this, what they're accused of as a cult of physical daring that you mentioned. But it is amazing, and you end the book this way as well, that these people, many of these leaders and just regular in our union and our organization called regular members, they would never back down. They were just amazing and committed and could come out of jail and go back, refuse to get out of jail. It was hard to read your book without just being overwhelmed with admiration for some of the individual commitment of some of these people. It was hard for me to write the book without being overwhelmed in, in the same way. I found the courage, the determination, the loyalty and solidarity that these people had quite remarkable. I'd like to bottle it up and pass it around today. <laughs> yes, I, I think the term inspirational is overused, but what these people did, if anything is inspirational, politically inspirational, what, what they did should be. It yeah. certainly is to me. Clearly, I, I'm, you know, starting the fan club for Professor White's book, but please tell people how to get this book, Professor. If you're willing to, to shop on Amazon, you can certainly get it there, Barnes & Noble. You could also get it from the press, University of California Press. They might have some discounts going, I'm not sure. And some select bookstores are carrying, you know, physical copies of the book. But the main online dealers, Powell's, pretty much any of the major online dealers you can get the book from. And do you have a website or an email for people who want to know more about this or continue the dialogue that you'd like to share? 
Uh, I sure do. I, I have one, which I probably haven't updated in a couple of weeks. I need to do that, but ahmedwhite.org or ahmedwhite.com, either of those would suffice. And if anyone needs to email me, they can find me at University of Colorado Law School in Boulder, and I'm happy to answer their questions. Fantastic. Look, we've been talking to Professor White about his book, Under the Iron Heel, Wobblies in the Capitalist World and Radical Workers. I can't tell you how much you might learn by reading this book. This has been Wage World for another week, the world where the other half lives, where we talk about things you've never heard. And as Lucinda Williams sings, things you've never seen, I'll never forget. Wage World is underwritten by the Darrell Foundation, a progressive force and enabling change based in Little Rock, Arkansas. And as the song goes, loud, we say it on the air, we say it on the radio. Until next week, we'll have another guest. This is Wade Rensky from Wage World. Thank you.